0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air.
1: In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue-wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust.
2: Welcome, friends, to Community or Chaos, and welcome Kevin Clements to Community or Chaos, hopefully Community. Kevin Clements is a former director and was foundation chair of the Peace and Conflict Studies of uh, National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at Otago University. And we're going to be talking about current peace and diplomatic issues facing New Zealand today. Oh, good morning, Kevin.
0: Good morning, Robin. Nice to be with you.
2: Well, first thing I thought we'd do is start close, fairly close to home, though it is in the North Island. It's Rocket Lab. Rocket Lab claims it only launches civilian and peaceful payloads and civilian commercial ventures. Are they breaching our nuclear-free policies and are they at risk of breaching world c- court opinions?
0: Um, well, Rocket Lab, as you know, I mean, was a, a much-vaunted um, um, project to bring New Zealand into the space age. It, it's only, we're, New Zealand is only one of 11 countries that have got a kind of a rocket-launching capacity. Um, and our government, uh, successive governments have been Bedazzled by the notion that we have, uh, um, you know, a, a rocket launch capacity. Uh, the reality is that that capacity is um, uh, funded by, by now an American-owned company, uh, and most of the current payloads have been for the American Department of Defense or for a lot of its affiliates. And so it was originally touted as a uh, as a communication satellite. Uh, satellite to aid aid research and so forth in outer space. Uh, But in recent months, um, and and in fact in recent years, uh, most of the payloads have been military. Uh, They've been aimed at um, boosting surveillance systems, um, command and control capacity uh, for the U.S. military. And the uh, last uh, launch of Gunsmoke J um, was very explicitly... um, Payload of the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command, um, uh, and so that raised all sorts of questions about whether it was a breach uh, of the um, uh, of our um, of our Arms Control Act as well. Um, so, and uh, in, in, um, the reason why it's ambiguous, and the reason why the uh, Stuart Nash was able to kind of make a decision in his favour was that. Um, it was ostensibly launching systems into space that would actually um, enhance the command and control of conventional forces uh, and the, com- the command and control of um, things like drones, but also uh, U.S. missiles. Uh, and it wasn't clear that it would necessarily be linked to any part of the U.S. nuclear territory. Um So that's the justification for... Um, you know that enabled Stuart Nash to uh, give approval to that uh, um, uh, to that last last launch. But we, the reality is that it's ninety uh, percent uh, payload is military and ten percent as civilian and uh, research and, uh, oriented.
2: Which party was was national in control then?
0: Uh, well, no, that's a good have... question. I'm not sure. Well, uh, exactly when rocket led um, came into play, it's now um, completely owned by Lockheed Martin. I
2: think uh, John Key was still prime minister.
0: I think he did. I think he was. And and the and um, it was Peter, Beck, Peter Beck, the guy who started it off. I mean, launched really as a as an uh, as a um, an argument for New Zealand developing space technology. Um, and uh, you know people's eyes start glazing over the notion that you might be able to launch missiles into space but the reality is that if you can launch missiles into space then on other occasions you can also launch, launch missiles uh, for more nefarious purposes
2: Well what should we do about this to, and
0: well, I think, I th- you know, there are a number of things I think we've really got to do uh, right now I mean I think that we do we do need to tighten up um uh, the approval procedure for um allowing uh rocket lab to launch um, uh, for example um the, the last um, when the when the government was last discussing Gunsmoke j i mean prime minister nash said that he was uh, unaware of any specific military capability um But if you Googled Gunsmoke J, I mean, it was very clear what its capabilities were. Um, But it's completely unacceptable that the minister in charge of approving a launch doesn't know what its military capabilities are. So I think there's a need to enhance the technological capacity of those advising him on it. secondly, I think it's really crucial that um, we clarify exactly whether it does or doesn't infringe our uh, um, anti-nuclear legislation. Um, uh, the reality is that you can put um, these different satellites into space and then change the software so that um, what was originally aimed at conventional weaponry can become nuclear. Um, and that was one of the anxieties about the Gunsmoke J. Um, The other thing that needs to happen is that there's an agreement called the technology safeguards agreement um which basically says it's a it's a u.s um uh, joint museum u.s agreement but basically that gives the u.s the right to um, protect all information about what's on what classified materials on uh, any of the rockets that rocket Lab um shoots into the air um and uh, this is uh, this is really kind of, um, um, and, and it can um, veto the launch of um, of, of uh, space launches from New Zealand territory, or import veto of any import of technologies to New Zealand. Um, basically, um, that means that uh, the US the US contains kind of copyright control, software control. Uh, Parts controls over everything that goes into Rocket Lab, uh, and it doesn't uh, share that information with you.
2: So, what should we do about
0: it? Um, well, you know, if I had my way, I would suggest that you know, it would be a nice idea if Rocket Lab had a final rocket launch to launch any um, useful, peaceful technology, and then we quietly started fading it out. Um, I don't think it adds to our security i don't think it adds to our scientific capacity um i would very much like rocket lab to be closed down if it can't be closed down uh i would really like to argue that um uh, we, we place much more stringent controls over the approval mechanisms uh, for the minister of uh, for um, minister of economic development um to approve or not approve i mean it's a little odd that um Stuart Nash is the one that approves these things um, uh, instead of the Minister of Arms Control and Disarmament. Um, but uh, I think that needs to be uh, strengthened and uh, if you're going to continue with it, we need to kind of uh, boost the technological capacity of those who are evaluating just what the the immediate short-term significance of this weaponry is and what its long-term implications are as well. And, and the last thing I think we need to be very mindful of, is that New Zealand, uh, like every other country in the world, has a vested interest, I think, in preventing the militarization of space. And um, the more we're aiding and abetting rocket launches of satellites into space, uh, we are effectively aiding and abetting its militarization.
2: In a way, New Zealand reminds me of Sweden. Sweden's got a great peace policy diplomatically and foreign aid but they're one of the biggest arms distributors for their size in the world. So is it something uh, incompatible or with a nation declaring itself peaceful and nuclear-free and so on and so on, and then uh, being part of the, the arms industry in certain ways, that we're quite aware of in New Zealand recently because of their New Zealand and other... Episodes.
0: Well, I mean, you're quite right. Sweden Sweden has a, you know, a policy of neutrality, but it's um, getting very close to NATO, and uh, um, it has a very significant arms industry and arms exports.
2: Um, we have a much smaller it,
0: it, industry. Smaller. I mean, both is, is a Swedish based company, but Saab and so forth. Are also, they're working with them. Um, uh, I think I think the question points to a sort of a deeper issue, actually, which is how close do we want to be to the U.S. alliance? Um, you know, we're we're making a small contribution through Rocket Lab to the militarization of space and to and to enhancing the command, control, and surveillance mechanisms of the U.S. military. Um, that places us in, uh, you know, what Paul Buchanan calls. Um, the kill line effectively, because we are um, aiding and abetting. Is um, hmm. uh, Pentagon in whatever purpose
2: You mentioned drones.
0: Yeah, it, 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 drone well, drones. Drones are, are
2: vehicles for assassination from a distance.
0: They are, and that's the kind of thing we need. So we need we need to ask ourselves how much we want to go back into the arms of the American Alliance, how much we want to continue uh, indirectly, if not directly, sheltering under the American nuclear umbrella in terms of its theory of extended um, and how much we want to revive and revitalize our nuclear um, arms control legislation uh, so that it does effectively prevent the um, any close connection with U.S. um, tactical
2: targeting um, uh, operation. All right. Could you, while we're talking about intelligence and so on, which is basically what this is, it's um, intelligence via satellite and the ability to, I mean, to control weapons, but also to control information. What could you say about? Could you talk about the Foreign Affairs Minister Naina Mahuta's recent statements on the Five Eyes Intelligence Group in relation to New Zealand and China?
0: Well, I think actually that was a very positive uh, statement on behalf. Um, the Five Eyes Intelligence Agreement, as you know, is intended to. Uh, what
2: was her statement?
0: Her her statement was that uh, New Zealand did not wish to be associated with um, the extension of Five Eyes objectives to um, include uh, human rights issues or political issues uh, and that it should just remain as as an intelligence gathering alliance. Um, And that was was a very, very uh, nuanced differentiation of, New New Zealand from the position of other members of the Alliance who wanted to kind of use the Five five Eyes Agreement as a basis for um, uh, essentially militarizing uh, intelligence um, and and giving the Five Eyes a a, a more specific worse of diplomacy dimension that it has had in the past.
2: Wasn't it actually developing another form of alliance between these groups going from intelligence gathering to actually making foreign policy and perhaps military decisions together instead of these countries having their independent foreign policy
0: and well absolutely I mean, um, and of course it?
2: the United States probably would have the strongest influence in those
0: well, well, going back to when it was begun in 1947, I mean, New Zealand felt very privileged to be included as part of the Five Eyes Alliance arrangement because it um, gave us status and access to foreign policy and defence decision-making in the UK, US, Canada, and Australia. Um, and so they, we, we, we joined because we wanted to be seen as part of the top table uh, when it came to making decisions about foreign policy. So it was a simple step from that to us joining CETO and ANZUS and the others joining NATO. Um, but in, you know, for the last sort of 60 odd years or 70 years, um, the Five Eyes Alliance has been very careful to kind of um, distinguish itself as an intelligence gathering um, alliance. Um, and uh, more recently, it's, um, it's uh, adopted a position which is much more like a normal conventional military alliance in terms of um, identifying problem areas uh, using the Five Eyes Alliance um, framework um, to criticize China and, uh, and its human rights policies and so forth. So I think it was a, an attempt on the nice part to make sure that our allies knew that we we wished to have an independent foreign policy or a more independent foreign policy than the other members of their lives.
2: What kind of political military relationship should we have with the Aust- with Australia and the US?
0: Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, Australia, Australia thinks that New Zealand um, has no military to um, contribute, no military of any significance contribute to the ANZUS arrangement into our bilateral defense ties with Australia. Um, I don't think that's an argument for expanding our our military. I think our military is perfectly adequate for the tasks that are assigned to it. Um, I think our um, uh, relationship with Australia and the US should be one of um, uh, constructive critic um, Uh, playing an independent role in relation to the alliance so that we're not always walking in lockstep uh, with US foreign policy. Um, I think that we should use what vestigial um, uh, parts of the alliance remain for us to um, very firmly establish that we see no future for nuclear weapons and no future for nuclear-based defense strategies. and I think we need to use our relationships of both Australia and the US to indicate that uh, we're much more in favor of preventive diplomacy rather than coercive diplomacy, and much more in favor of non-military solutions to problems and military ones. Um, but there's also an argument that can be made for the fact that you know, um, it might be easier for New Zealand at one level uh, if we were free of all alliance arrangements. Um, But that's a step too far for our Ministry of Foreign Affairs
2: and for the Defense Department. All right. Foreign Minister Lehutu recently stated that we should look at our trade relations with China and seek not to be so dependent on one country's trade with us. Could you comment on our relationship with China?
0: Well, as you know, we're heavily dependent on China for trade. Uh, and for our economic prosperity, Uh, and that makes it very difficult um, if we want to maintain those trading arrangements for us to be critical of China. Um, And China is, as you know at the moment, uh, involved in in what we call big power rivalry and big power transitions in not only in Northeast Asia, but in the rest of the world. So we we're a very small country by comparison, and we have to figure out what role we want to take in relation to the 21st century shifts in the balance of power. Australia has decided that um, it will go along with the United States and um, and take a confrontational stand on on China. Ninaya Mahuta and Jacinda Ardern I think have decided that while we will talk about things that worry us about China's human rights record and China's um, contempt for democracy as witnessed by uh, the crackdown in Hong Kong, while we will voice those concerns, we'll do so quietly in order to protect the wider relationship. This, um... I, I happen to think that um, that's the right position, that we have more chance of influencing China if we were in a positive relationship with it than a negative one. So I'm very much in favor of encouraging that, but being critical at the same time when we feel we have the need to be critical.
2: Did we make a mistake in the late 80s and early 90s when we decided to depend so much economically on foreign trade and end up with trading with two or three countries, basically, China being the main one? Should, yeah, we, should if we, if we want to have an independent country, should we have a slightly more independent economy, and then and be more resilient in our economy and have a variety in it? Not only who we trade with, but also what we can make in New Zealand. I mean, do we have to build buy all the railways from China? Can't we make our own?
0: Yeah. And, and you're arguing there, I think, you know, quite convincingly for the kind of position that Bill Such argued for many years ago, which was that basically New Zealand should um, diversify its trade partners. Uh, and we haven't done that very successfully. I mean, what happened when Britain went into the EU was that we simply shifted our attention towards Asia. Um, and so became much more active traders with China and Japan and the U.S. and so forth. Um, but in fact, it would have been a, a much smarter strategy uh, if we had diversified our trading partners a bit more. Um, having said that, though, um, I think it's also important that you know an independent foreign policy does require um, an independent and non-dependent set of economic relationships um, with other countries, so that we can, so that we're not we're not um, beholden to them when it comes to crunch issues that we want to talk about
2: Okay I'm going to play a piece of music now That was Annie Hall singing a Pete Seeger song about Hiroshima. We're talking with um, Kevin Clements, former director and foundation chair of Peace and Study and Conflict Studies Center. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast, and then going to Community or Chaos. And it'll be podcasts not too long after we play this show. Kevin, we've been debating China, actually, in Parliament recently, particularly their harsh repression of the... um, Ugar Muslims in uh, northeastern China should we have instead of criticizing them broadly on their treatment of your urgar Muslims should we have accused them of genocide
0: um well i think I think it was a very uh, good move not to do that at the moment because a genocide has got some very clear com- components in its definition. Um, you have to establish an intention to eliminate a population. Um, and I don't think that the Chinese are quite there yet. But I think it is fair enough to say that they have engaged in what we might call cultural genocide. Um, and in today's um, paper, for example, there's also a rather alarming um, statistics showing that the Uyghurs the Uyghurs uh, population and growth has halved in the last uh, two years so uh, the Chinese I think they might have no intent to eliminate the population their policies are severely challenging um, Uyghur culture Muslim culture and the desire of Uyghurs to have children all of which is quite bad,
2: Have some political parties and groups risk devaluing the term genocide" by its loose use of the term?
0: Yeah, I think uh, you know, um, I think a case can be made for the fact that the Burmese government um, in its systematic assault on Rohingya uh, and their desire to um, force them to flee from Burma and uh, the raping and killing that took place while that happened. I think uh, you could make a much uh, stronger case for that being a case of genocide than you can for the Uyghurs. But the Uyghurs, on the other hand, I mean, thousands have been put into these education centers and detention centers uh, and there's a huge assault on Uyghur culture, Uyghur language and Uyghur religion. Um, So there's no doubt at all that the Chinese do have a policy of trying to Mm -hmm. Um, suppress uh, Uyghur culture and uh, replace it with uh,
2: conventional Chinese Confucian culture. When I was very young, I was quite aware of the Holocaust and genocide, and I wonder at the use of this term for, I mean, the horrible things that happen: massacre, the forced assimilation. All these things happen, and they've happened in history, they happen now, and they happen in the last couple hundred years. But don't we need to make distinctions?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt at all that the Holocaust was a, a case of the most appalling 20th century genocide of a whole race the Jewish people. Um, and there's no doubt at all that that all of the all of the, the criteria for a genocidal act.
2: Um, but if we it, say every attack on the people, no matter how successful or unsuccessful, is genocide, what does genocide mean anymore?
0: Yeah, I, don't, I, I think it's important to keep genocide as a term for um, intentional elimination of a people or a culture. But, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, when you look at all of the events of the 20th century and, and a lot of the things that are happening right now the
2: or even the 19th century
0: in the 19th century there were I mean we, we've you know, we human beings have dealt uh, have, have, um, dealt with other human beings in an appalling fashion far too often um, and uh, there have been far too many examples of genocide I mean the, the Germans for example um, committed a sort of a near genocide in Namibia um, right back at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so I, I think that... Um, and of course there are um,
2: Armenians.
0: And the Armenian genocide and the Turkish genocide of Armenians as well. I mean, that, all of those things, I think, can, can quite legitimately be labeled genocide. Um, so far, I mean, we haven't seen much to indicate that the Chinese are systematically killing the people. I mean, they're rounding them up and doing all sorts of terrible things, but they're not actually killing them even though their policies are having that effect at a cultural level and in terms of Uyghurs deciding that they don't want to procreate. What
2: can one do with countries with major powers when they do evil things? What can small countries do? Well, that's the big challenge. When I mean, it isn't big- just off- China. You could look at the United States and Latin America at times. Or you could well, look at Russia. Big,
0: that's, a big, that's a big challenge. I mean, uh, Thucydides a long time ago argued that, you know, big countries do as they will and small countries do as they must. Um, and that, I think, is the big challenge for a small country and a small country, country like Ukraine. Mm. I think our best chances for influencing big powers and big military powers are to um, develop coalitions of the willing and coalitions of the like-minded. So I, I think whenever I see New Zealand joining forces with our Scandinavian um, colleagues um, uh, around issues of war and peace or genocide or whatever it might be, or even human rights, I think that's absolutely the right way to go, that small and intermediate powers can mm-hmm. gather together and say, it's play. Okay. it's really unacceptable, we've crossed a red line in terms of acceptable behavior. Is this
2: why the World Court and the United Nations can be important?
0: Well, that's right. The world, the world Court and the International Court of Justice and so forth are all efforts to try and make sure that uh, we live in a rules-based order and that when, when countries infringe those rules, uh, they're held to account. I mean, that's the, that's the whole promise and hope of world peace and world law. Um And it's interesting that the countries that uh, are reluctant to sign on to this are countries like the United States who don't want their independence or um, uh, their actions to be held accountable to a jurisdiction that lies outside of their own country.
2: Well, I might play another song and then we'll come back. We might talk about um, the foreign minister's initial policy statement Her initial speech to parliament as a foreign minister.
1: Here they come marching past the houses Shiny boots and khaki blouses Stiff as the creases in their trousers Standing tall and straight and strong And they all keep in step together Glint of steel and flash of leather Braving every kind of weather As they boldly march along You can dismiss it as a ploy For the enlistment of the boys Who'll be impressed to see the toys And play the games that can be played And you may well prefer abstention but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade look at your sons before they're older, they'll be stronger they'll be bolder, just the thing to make a soldier and we'll turn them into men and they'll be taught to follow orders, keep the peace and guard the borders to protect us from marauding. And defend us to the end But the position they'll be filling Is to be able and be willing To be killed or do the killing When there's a price that must be paid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade In the pursuit of a community Of decency and unity And equal opportunity We stand prepared to fight And if there's a threat to our position From an unruly opposition Then with guns and ammunition We'll repel with all our might And we'll dehumanize and hate them Send in the troops to decimate them As in the name of all the nation All it stands for is betrayed And you may Prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. For me, the wimp or intuition of an elected politician makes a melee with no condition. Once the monster quits the cage It's a machine that gives no quarter Dealing death and sowing slaughter Braving mothers, wives and daughters In an all-consuming rage And we may well believe we need it And we'll pay to arm and feed it But can you tell me who will lead it When the decisions must be made And you may well believe abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. Some will wonder what's to fear and say that there's no danger here, but there has never been a year when soldiers haven't been at war. And all the evil executions And the bloody revolutions And the ultimate solutions To have all been seen before And there is always someone scheming And sometimes at night when dreaming In the distance I hear screaming And in my heart I feel afraid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade They come marching past the houses Shiny boots and khaki blouses Stiff as the creases in their trousers Standing tall and straight and strong And is it any cause for pride That now the women march beside them? Will there be wiser gods to guide them In discerning right from wrong? For every step is a reminder Of the threat that lies behind If we forget the ties that bind us When the authentic game is played we will prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade And as the procession passes by Consider the sight before your eyes Cause it'll be you they kill and die For if they are called to the crusade For you may love them and adore them You may hate them and abhor them But for Christ's sake don't ignore them When the boys are on parade
2: Well that was um, from Marcus Turner, a former musician and lyricist, probably one of the best lyricists in recent history in New Zealand, even though he's not well known. Outside of Dunedin. And we're talking with Kevin Clements, former director and foundation chair of peace and conflict studies, Otago, about New Zealand foreign policy and relations with China and other countries, including um, Australia and America. Would you care to comment on Foreign Minister Nyami Behutu's initial foreign policy speech? And is she someone who you reckon that will remember for some time as a foreign minister?
0: Yes, I think um, you're referring, I think, to the speech that she made at, at Waitangi. Yes, um, this is the this is the speech which really laid out her vision for the goal. and I think um, I, what flowed from that, for example, was her critical comment about the Five Eyes alliance. I mean, it has um, a number of different pieces. To it. Um, she she reiterated New Zealand's desire to. Work towards and be part of a rules-based international order, and I think that's uh, you know I think we all we all agree with that. Um, She wants to kind of provide and she wants an international system which gives everybody a voice and provides frameworks that promote stability. And I'm I'm taking from that that she wants to expand the role and significance of the United Nations. she wants to kind of uh, work in collaboration with other countries on sustainability issues and climate change issues. Um, but she also developed a kind of what I thought was interesting was a sort of a four-part values-based approach to foreign policy, um, uh, utilising values which are which are at the heart of Maori culture. Um, so the first one was Minaki. So she said that, you know, our foreign policy was going to be based on kindness, or uh, what she calls the reciprocity of goodwill, which I think is absolutely uh, admirable and is very consistent with what um, Jacinda Ardern's been trying to do with her kind of you know, domestic kind, policy. Uh, yes, be kind strategy, uh, and I think that you know, if other countries um, really began thinking about uh, that in terms of Manaki, uh, how can they be kind? How can they? How can they? ensure that their relationships with other countries generate positive benefits rather than negative ones. I think that would be really helpful. The second point that she made had to do with banana, um, which is really another way of talking about connectedness or a shared sense of humanity. Um, I think this is also very important um, in terms of um, things that we're interested in, like the humanitarian approach to arms control and disarmament, um, Ensuring that uh, the total amount of suffering in the world is diminished, um, and that we have mechanisms in place for ensuring that um, people don 't suffer un- unnecessarily or or for too long um, and I think that that sort of shared sort of humanitarian ideal is one which is really really quite crucial, and then the other one was mahitanga. Um, Collective benefits and shared aspirations, by which I think she really means working with others to develop a kind of a common vision of a of a peaceful world, um, and I think this is this is a, a, you know potentially quite transformative if, um, and then I and the um, current government, for example, you know wanted to direct some attention towards. Um, Um, expanding and um, enhancing power and um, uh, resources allocated to the United Nations and other regional and multilateral organizations, I think that would be a very good signal to the world at the moment, which seems very ready to ignore the United Nations unless they can and and, and, until they can't avoid taking into account. Um, So I think developing a whole set of new um, discussions around ways in which we can revitalize United you know, Nations is very important. And the final one is, is kaitiaki, um, which means how do we protect and, and steward our intergenerational well-being? And I think that's another interesting value as well, which is, you know, if we if we, if we start thinking in terms of well, what uh, what do we need as a nation to, to develop our well-being, and what do other countries need and how do we jointly provide that? Um, I think that's um, that's potentially a, uh, also a very interesting new criteria to apply um, when thinking through you know, what are the implications of our foreign policy decisions. Um, and all of those um, resonate very well with um, indigenous peoples everywhere. And uh, another part of her talk was to really highlight the way in which New Zealand, as a bicultural society bound under treaty arrangements, um, could play a role with other Indigenous peoples all around the world uh, in ensuring that their interests are protected, their cultures are protected, their languages are protected, uh, and they're able to assume an equal role as partners in forging. a sort of a common destiny in the 21st century. And I think that's a, that's a more powerful signal um, from a foreign minister about solidarity with other indigenous peoples than we've ever had before.
2: This is really quite amazing in many ways, but it also isn't totally new. It fits in with ever since the the World War II, the Labour Party's idea of collective security and the importance of the United Nations. For instance, I know that New Zealand did not wish to have the um, veto for the five major powers at the time it happened.
0: Um, Peter Peter Fraser and um, Frank Corner and others who were at the foundation of the United Nations argued very strongly that in small countries uh, the veto was uh, a major impediment to international cooperation and I think everybody's in agreement now that uh, the reason one of the reasons why the United Nations is not able to act effectively in relation to a whole range of issues is because the five uh, the P5 five um, you know to protect their national interests so <laughs> it's possible for uh, Guterres for example to develop a, a, an international coalition um, in, in response to The latest coup in Burma or in Myanmar uh, because Russia and China beat out it. So, in some ways,
2: Mahuta's initiatives are strong and good initiatives, a noob, but they come from a strong foundation, don't they? Yes. That New Zealanders should be able to understand and support.
0: Yeah, she's she's building on her um, Maori um, culture and values. Um, which is also a building on our history,
2: both Pākehā and Maori.
0: Goodwill and, Mari. Goodwill and, and cooperation and, and commitment to a multilateral rules-based order. I think that's that's been something that's uh, characterised New Zealand's foreign policy for many many years. I mean, we get distracted from that by um, alliance relationships, which, uh, in a sense, cut across all of them. I mean, so. Um, the Five Eyes arrangement, um, uh, ANZUS, and so forth. I mean, isn't all that interested in the well-being of our enemies? Um, it's not that interested in um, promoting a kind of a shared sense of humanity. It's not that interested in um, jointly trying to work out a kind of a, a peaceful vision for the future. Uh, and these things, uh, you know, uh, and it is interested in in containing China and China's rise. So. So, another part of this whole puzzle here is the so called Quad, the relationship between India, China, uh, India, the US, Australia, and Japan. Uh, and New Zealand's been invited to join that, and other countries are being invited to join it as well. But um, there's a sort of a, it, 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 that represents another um, attempt uh, to try and develop a, a, an additional layer of containment against China's uh, um, militarization and, and China's what um, you know
2: I agree with you about alliances and so on but what about Taiwan Taiwan in some ways has its own history and its own people and they I don't know about the legal position but the moral position they have a right to autonomy and independence don't they
0: sorry I, I, I missed the first point
2: a um, uh, Taiwan
0: Taiwan has um, its
2: own history and its own culture to cer to an extent. They're, while they have, I don't know about the legal position, but ethically they have a right to autonomy and independence, don't they?
0: Yeah, just as Hong Kong did too, because even with a legal arrangement there, yeah. uh, you know, I think China um, China's position on this is uh, you know a bit ambivalent. I mean, they definitely do. Uh, see Taiwan as part of of one China. Um, And their rhetoric is um, becoming more bellicose towards any indication of uh, Taiwanese independence or autonomy. Um, uh, But uh, despite the uh, saber rattling on the other side of the Tasman, where they thought, you know, we have a good chance of going to war against China over Taiwan in three to four years, I mean, I think it's really important that New Zealand plays a part in just um, cooling the rhetoric. Um, And uh, it's in China's interest at the moment to have an independent Taiwan because Taiwan has invested mightily in the Chinese uh, economic miracle. Um, China itself has invested heavily in Taiwan. Um, They have very, very strong interdependent economic ties. Um, they differ around our political system, but I'm hoping that China will sort of realize sooner rather than later um, and that um, you know, the the uh, economic relationships and the social relationships um, are much more important than having a unified political system okay
2: We just have a few minutes so could what are your what direction would you like to see New Zealand's trade and foreign policy go? I think we have some indication of this already, but what are your hopes? And how do individual New Zealanders support this kind of uh, direction?
0: Well, the first thing I think that needs to happen is that more New Zealanders need to take an active interest in foreign affairs. Um, you know, one of the things which I find really depressing right now is that if you look around the world, Most people in most countries um, are much more interested in domestic policy than they are in foreign Mm -hmm. affairs.
2: Is this one good reason why the Greens are more likely to be the next supporters of the Labour Party than other political parties?
0: Yes, yeah. Um, But, you know, we're we're confronted by big challenges with COVID and housing and everything else. You can see why domestic issues reign supreme. But um, I think it's really important that there's a strong and active constituency Focusing attention on foreign policy um, and working to ensure that that foreign policy um, mirrors what we're trying to do internally in terms of uh, goodwill, economics, um, politics of kindness, um, the politics of inclusion, etc, etc. So that's one thing I think we need to mobilize larger numbers of people to take a more active interest in foreign affairs and what it means for the country. Secondly, I think it's important that we really begin having some open debate and discussion about how closely or loosely we want to be associated uh, with our former allies in ANZUS uh, and with with the Five Eyes. Um, My sense is that New Zealanders um, are really quite, um, are prepared to begin thinking of a more independent foreign policy Um, but nobody has any kind of clarity around what it will mean. Um, There are, you know, long and um, uh, extensive uh, opposition to it from, you know, foreign affairs and so forth. Um, But I I think this is an issue that we need to debate. And in particular, we need to debate how closely we want to be allied with the U.S. in relation to its overall military strategy and military policy and coercive diplomacy. And from my perspective, I think we, we should, it, would, it would be in our interests if, if we try to um, loosen that relationship with the U.S. thirdly, um, I think we need to have a, a hard-headed conversation about what we want from Australia. And I think we want from Australia very close um, economic ties, as we have in the closer economic relationship. We want close personal and social ties because, you know, many museums live in Australia and vice versa. Um, but I think we want we want to work with Australia to ensure that um, our relationship isn't guided primarily by defence and security issues. That it's guided by uh, interests in, you know, what your whole program's about, which is how to build a kind of a, a trans Tasman. Uh, economic, social community, if not a political community, um, uh, where we where we have interests in common, uh, and where we seek to serve those interests and satisfy those interests in nonviolent way.
2: Okay, thanks a lot for your wisdom today, Kevin. Really appreciated having you on. And no, we'll, thank you. Sorry, I'm sorry. i we'll to talk I've been again soon. Through. Well, that's like history; hard to change. <laughs>
0: Okay no, be my pleasure. bye thanks. Thank you all. Thanks a lot. This
3: podcast was produced by OrFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.